Please be seated. That was not intentionally a test. Sorry about that. We didn't have the words up there. Uh, Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. This summer, we're going through a series in the book of Genesis, looking at the first 11 chapters. So if you want to be turning in your Bibles, or if you'll find a pew Bible in one of the chairs in front of you, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, verses 15 through 25. I'm told that when people are trained to spot counterfeit uh, currency, counterfeit bills, that uh, it's they're, they're training, and this is apocryphal, maybe I'm wrong, but I've heard this story, so it sounds good. Uh, they're trained, I just, I just heard a word from the audience that's true, they're trained rather than having people look at many, many examples of false bills. So you can see all the different ways things can be done wrong. Instead, people who are trained, they're trained by looking at one thing only, the real bill. The real thing. So that they might know what is genuine and true because the thought is if they can recognize the real thing, then they'll be able to recognize the many, many ways things are uh, counterfeited and done wrong. That's part of the reason we're going to Genesis 1 through 11 this summer because we're going back to the very beginning, literally the very beginning of the Bible, literally the very beginning of all things that are as we look at creation and see God's good intention for uh, His creation, for us. What it means to be people made in the image of God, what it means that God's our creator, what it means uh, to uh, step into work as one of the created goods. Last week we looked at the goodness of rest. This morning we're looking at the goodness of marriage. Genesis 1 through 11 also talks to us about what went so horribly wrong and why there's so many counterfeits there. But we look at this to see what, what did God design? What did He make? And by His grace, what is He remaking? So we're going to see that in relationship to marriage this morning. Let's pray and then we'll read and dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we do come to You this morning and um, pray that even right now that You would show us what is genuine and true about marriage, about what You designed it to be. Father, we pray for encouragement this morning. We pray for greater wisdom. We pray for Your presence Lord, would you speak to us through your word and by your spirit and make us receptive to what you have for us this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. You'll see the flowers up here. We had a wedding here just yesterday. 
uh, and it was the daughter and fiance of one of uh, our church families. And to, to be back in a, in a wedding again, and I've gotten to do a few this summer, it just reminds me, you know, there is something incredibly powerful and special about a wedding. And even in, in our world and our culture, as with every culture, though marriage in so many ways is so broken, yet still that wedding day is held up as this, this beautiful ideal of the way things ought to be. There's something that's retained in our picture of a wedding. It reminds us of the goodness that God created marriage to be. And we have a variety of different experiences of marriage in this room. Some of us are married and been long married. Some of us happily so. Some of us really struggling. Some of us maybe are in this room and unmarried but would long to be. Some of us in this room think back still in mourning over the loss of a spouse. And some of us this morning may be very distrustful of marriage, whether because of our own experience and measure or maybe just growing up in a family where you saw a marriage fall apart, in essence, if not in fact. And you know how broken this institution of marriage can be and maybe feel very ambivalent even talking about marriage. But regardless of, of where we come to it, we know that marriage matters. We know that it has weight. Whether you're for it or against it, it is this big rock in the middle of the room that is there. Marriage matters. So why? We're coming to Genesis 2 this morning, the very beginning of God speaking into marriage, something that's taken up many times in Scripture. But here we see some of the most beautiful and powerful words about marriage in the whole Bible. Here in the very beginning of Genesis, we see the creation of marriage and what God made it to be. So we're going to see very simply this morning that God gave marriage to us as a gift and it is good. It is a good gift given to us from the hand of our Creator. So in seeing that, we're going to look at, at four things in the text this morning. We're going to see the surprise of marriage and the power of marriage, the priority of marriage, and the metaphor of marriage. Those four things. First, the surprise of marriage. If you're familiar with the first couple chapters of Genesis, which we've been going through, Genesis chapter 1, you, you see this overview of God's creation of everything. And it is filled with the splendor and just majesty of God who can create just with a word. And it comes to be. And as we see the beauty of creation as God calls it forth day after day, these six days of creation at the end of each of nearly every day, God says this, He created and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. This uh, repeated refrain. But now suddenly, at this point in chapter 2, chapter 1 closes with this overview of the days of creation. And then in chapter 2, we, we get the, the street level view of what happens on day 6 when God creates man and woman, when He creates mankind. So in chapter 2, the, the narrative shifts and we get a much more detailed picture of one aspect of creation. And so in the midst of all these refrains of it is good, it is good, it is good, we hear these jarring words in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And if you've been reading this with the author up through this first chapter, that would just strike your ears as what? What happened to everything is good? And now there's this one thing that is not good. He says, it is not good that Adam was alone. Now think just for a minute about what a remarkable thing and a remarkable statement this is. Again, chapter 1, filled with the beauty and grandeur of creation. 
And if you were to go back and read the first number of verses in chapter 2, you'd see that God takes out of all of creation, He plants this garden in Eden, and He fills it with trees and abundance and every good thing. There's this description of Eden. It says there are rivers running through it that would water it. It says that there was gold in the land, that there was every natural resource. It's this incredible place. It's literally paradise. It's literally paradise. Everything the way it's meant to be. And here you have mankind, you have Adam in relationship with God, face to face, that is unbroken, it's unmarred, no sin, nothing has come into fracture. Everything is exactly the way God designed it to be, no brokenness. And in the midst of that kind of perfection, God still says, there's one thing that's not good, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Alone. Here you have Adam made in the image of God, unlike anything else in creation, standing face to face with God. And God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I mean, do you hear that? Do you hear the humility of our God? That God creates us in relationship with Him. And in so many ways, that would be enough, wouldn't it? Mankind created nothing gone wrong in right relationship with God. But he says, it is not good for you to be alone. He says, I have not only created you for relationship with me, I've created you for relationship with another as well. God, in his humility, says, I want my people to experience love and connection and communion, not only with me, but with others like themselves. God, our God, exists as a trinity, something we cannot wrap our minds around. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship with each other in perfect communion with each other, experiencing relationship, and He gives us the same gift. He says, I I have created you for relationship as well. It's a surprise. It's not what we would have expected. But then what happens? God says He is alone and it's not good, but He goes on to show Adam exactly what He says. Do you see that? God knows what's going on. And He looks at His creation. He's not surprised. He made Adam that way. He made this gap in creation. So that he might step in and fill it. But the next thing he does is he shows Adam his need. See what happens after he says this? He says he takes Adam into the garden and he brings before Adam every animal that Adam might name. Okay, kind of strange interlude in the story unless we see what's going on. Adam, if you remember, was created to be God's representative on earth. His steward, his little K king over the world to take care of the world. To exercise loving dominion over it. And so when Adam names the animal, naming is is an act of dominion. It's an act of ruling. It's an act of care. And so Adam is doing exactly what God created him to do. He's caring for the world. And he's naming everything around him. He's functioning as God's representative. But there's something more going on too. I mean, you can imagine Adam there with God parading the animals before him. And he looks at each of them and he names it. Okay, not just uh, random names. He looks at it and he knows creation and he gives it a name that is fitting for it. It's an elephant. It's a giraffe. It's an alligator. But one of the things that seems that he would have noticed with each of these is, you know, there's two of all these things. You know, everything in creation has its corresponding half, has its, has its fit. And Adam would have seen as he names and names and names, everything in creation has a connection and a fit, but there's nothing here that fits me. And Adam would have experienced exactly what God knew to be the truth, that Adam was alone. And once Adam's eyes are open to that, then God steps in to remedy the situation. 
It is not good for man to be alone. And Adam sees it now. And now God steps in and he says, I'm going to do something about this for Adam. He steps in, puts Adam into a deep sleep, performs the first ever thoracic surgery. He takes a rib and out of it he fashions Eve. And he prepares to bring Eve to him. Again, we had a wedding here yesterday. And as you likely been to weddings, you know, there's this incredibly poignant moment in a wedding. And for the minister, we, I, I, get a, I get a front row seat to this. As all the attendants have come in, and the doors and back close, and the music changes to the bridal procession, and the doors are thrown open again. And there in the threshold is the bride being escorted by her father. They walk down the aisle, and you can see the bride in all her radiance. And you can see, and I get a front row seat to seeing the groom as he looks at his bride coming down the aisle. Look on his face, the sense of connection, the sense of awe. Here they come. They walk down the aisle, and then there'll be three of them in front of me. There'll be the bride, and in the middle, the father, and then uh, the groom. And God, in this scene, is the father walking his daughter, the bride, down the aisle. He comes and He brings her to Adam. The surprise of marriage. But that sends us right into the power of marriage. Because what is this bride like that He brings to Adam? Look at the uh, description that He gives. In, In verse 18, when He first puts His finger on the need, the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Helper fit for him. First, fit for him. Literally in the Hebrew, this is, this is two words and it means like opposite. Like opposite. God's creating someone for Adam that is like him, that's similar, that is human as he is, but is oh so opposite too. And oh so different, so corresponding. Human but female. God says that Adam's uh, aloneness isn't good. Notice what he doesn't give Adam to fill that need. He doesn't come to Adam and he says, Adam, you are alone. What you really need is a good hobby to fill your time. Or he doesn't come to Adam and he says, you're alone. You're in need. I'm going to set you up with a Facebook account. He doesn't come to Adam and he says, you're alone. I'm going to give you three golf buddies to go out and hit golf balls with. Or a fishing buddy. What does he do? He gives him Eve, somebody who is like opposite. As another commentator defines this Hebrew term, it means equal and adequate. He comes to Adam and gives, the, gives him the one who will be corresponding to him, the one he most needs. So fit for him, but he says that he comes and he gives Eve to him as a helper. Okay, now honestly, what are the images that come to mind for you? Eve, the helper of Adam. Eve, uh, the subordinate to walk alongside Adam. Eve, the glorified chambermaid. Eve, the one to clean the house. Eve, the one to cook the meals and to take care of Adam's every whim and need to bring the popcorn while he's on the sofa with the remote. Everything Adam could possibly need. Here he finally has a helper. Well, if that's your picture of what it means to be a helper, I've got to tell you, it, is, it is, could not be further away from the Bible's picture of what it means when it says that Eve is Adam's helper. The Hebrew word here, it's, it's azer, and it means something closer to this, an ally. This word is used about 20 times in the Old Testament of the Bible, and in almost every occasion, it has to do with military help. It is a strong ally. And in most of the situations... It refers to God as the helper, the ally of Israel, his people. The helper 
the strong helper, the ally. If you are a nation at war and struggling, what kind of ally do you want? You want one that is strong, that is going to come in and give you the rescue and aid and help and support that you need. And that's a picture we have here of Adam with this incredible task given to him to care for and steward creation. And he says, I'm going to give you a helper, an ally, one that is perfectly fit for you. One who is both equal and opposite of you to walk with you and do this with you. This idea of helper is an ally and a picture of strength. Then how does Adam respond? Here comes God coming down the aisle bringing Eve to him. And there's that moment in the wedding ceremony when after the declarations of intent are given, when the minister says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And Father says something like her, her family and I do, and he sits down and he puts he puts the groom's or he puts his daughter's arm in the groom's arm and backs up. And that is the moment that we have here in verse twenty three when Eve is brought to Adam. What do we have? The world's very first poetry looks at Eve and he says, "At last, everything in creation has its match, but me. At last." Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is it. This is the one coming to me from the good hand of our God. The Bible tells us even here of the power of this connection for a husband and wife, of what marriage was meant to be. Look, Look at what he says in verse 24. Right after this poem of Adam's, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hold fast to, stick to, be joined to, be inseparably bound to. The two shall become one flesh, designed to be the deepest of connections, physical oneness, spiritual oneness, social oneness financial and practical oneness. A picture of two lives completely intertwined. As I say in, in wedding ceremonies when, when I'm, I'm introducing what's happening, I say, you know, here, here are two people that are stepping up here that are, that are going to be bound together. And they're going to be bound together not just with the, the joy and excitement that it is so plain to see in a bride and groom's face. Not only bound together with that, but bound together with words and symbols of a determined choice to stand by each other, to be for each other, to be steadfast. Because couples, whether they realize it or not, don't just get up here and say, I really feel great feelings of love for you. What they do is they say, I am going to love you and stick with you. And I'm going to give you a ring as a symbol of my promise to you. And I'm going to say words of a vow that bind me to you. It's what's reflected in our marriage vows. Here are the ones that were said yesterday. I take you to be my wife, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish until parted by death. This is my solemn vow. We are bound to each other in marriage. Now, on the side, this is why sexual activity outside of marriage is so destructive. Because you've got part of the oneness, a powerful part, a physical part, without the overall commitment of a life lived together. It's an imitation of oneness without all the other strands, and it is not the way it's meant to be. It's why it is so damaging for people. 
This is also why divorce is so destructive. The ripping apart of a powerful bond with another person. Why Jesus in Matthew 19, he quotes this verse from Genesis that uh, in verse 24 that uh, uh, they are no longer two but one. And he goes on and says this, Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, the Bible is also clear that there are certain situations in which uh, divorce is uh, biblically legitimate. But that's always because of the brokenness and fallenness of marriage. Not because of what it was designed to be but because of the reality of the hardness of life in a fallen world. And there are concessions in the Bible, but it's also always a mark of something that was meant to be one thing, falling apart tragically. And that's also why the death of a spouse is so deeply painful. It feels like part of you has died, because it has. But then we get to this in the power of marriage. Verse 25, one of the weddings I did earlier this summer... Uh, the, these Genesis verses were the reading for the day and from which I was going to be speaking. And one of the, the uncle of one of the, of, uh, I think it was the groom, was, was going to be reading these verses. And he found me before the service and he, and he came up to me and he said, so these are the verses I'm supposed to read. It's in the program. I said, that's right. And he said, Pastor, now, do you want me to read verse 25? And I said, oh yeah, you have to read verse 25. Because if we don't read verse 25, we don't get What's going here? Verse 25, it says this. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This goes right to the heart of the power of the connection of marriage. Naked and unashamed. Not only the lack of external covering, but the lack of an internal covering as well. Can you imagine this? Marriage as it's created to be. No hiding and nothing to hide. No shame Because there's nothing to be ashamed of. This picture of Adam and Eve unfallen, man and a woman next to each other, side by side going through life with no shame, with no fear, nothing to hide. Takes your breath away, doesn't it? Because we so rarely even get a glimpse of what that might feel like. That we might be comfortable, that comfortable, in the presence of another But that kind of intimacy, the depth of it, is what marriage was created to be. The deepest place in your life of being known by another. Do you know that power in your marriage? We all know the struggles of marriage, but do you know that God created marriage to be good? This is the picture He gives us of it. Now, the, next we see not only the power of marriage, but the priority of marriage. And we see that simply here in uh, verse 24 again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. What we see is that marriage has a fundamental claim on our lives. If you are married, then by definition, by being married, that relationship is the most important, the most central, the foundational relationship for your entire life. Okay, he says a man will leave his, husband, his mother and his father and be joined to his wife. When a couple gets married, they leave their old families and start a new one. An entirely new family is started right here. God tells us that that is your foundational responsibility. Right next to following God, which a married couple is called to do together, this is your most central commitment. It comes before your job. It comes even before your children. It comes before your obligations to your parents, 
all of which are legitimate obligations and responsibilities in our lives. But this one comes first. You know, we talk about leaving and cleaving in the old words of the King James. One place where many couples go wrong is when they have not left and cleft, right? And that's important for those of us who are married, who are thinking about marriage, to know that what you are getting into or what you got yourself into, whether you realized it or not, was a relationship of that kind of centrality. It is the most important thing for you. And are you treating it? And are you nurturing it as that most important thing? Are you giving it the care, the nurture, the watering that it needs in your life? And for us too, I'd say, uh, for, those of, for those of us that have children who are married, do you know that this is your child's primary relationship now? That your son, your daughter, their primary relationship and obligation is now to their spouse, not to you. And are you releasing them for that? And are you respecting them so that their marriage might be free to flourish? Are you stepping into the role of supporters and encouragers? And not trying to pull them back subtly or not so subtly. You know, again, I think about that moment when a father walks his daughter down the aisle. And now that I have daughters of my own, I'm starting to get a glimpse of what a leap of faith that is <laughs> for a father and a family to say that he's giving away, a family is giving away their daughter to step back and put his daughter's arm into the arm of this other man. Incredible. But it's a leap of faith and a step of faith that we must take as we are getting married and as you see your own children getting married. This is the one. This is the relationship, the priority one. And it has more power in your life than any other relationship. It has the power to mold you and shape you for good or for ill like nothing else in your life. Uh, as one pastor, Tim Keller, says often in speaking about marriage, he says marriage is unique in that uh, the power that it holds over us to shape us and to redefine who we are. For example, you can be, um, you can find yourself uh, under attack and a failure in almost every area of your life. Things can be falling apart at work. You can have fallout with other friends. You can be struggling in so many areas across the board in your life. But if your marriage is strong, then you walk into that broken world from a position of strength. And in the very opposite way, everything in your life can be going right. Your career is just blossoming. Everything is going well in your social circles. Your health is good. Everything seems to be right on track. But if your marriage is sour, if your marriage is struggling, then it has the power to cast a pall over everything else because it is the most central thing. And we must attend to it and nurture it. In our fallen world, it has the... Marriage has the possibility, the potential to create the greatest struggle in our lives or to give us the greatest sense of relational healing in our lives that we can know. The priority of marriage. But there's one more thing that we have to say about marriage. It's not only a surprise and it's not only powerful, it's not only the priority for us. We see here in Genesis the beginning of a picture that unfolds throughout Scripture of the metaphor of marriage, the picture that marriage is. Because when we marry, we are getting in on a reality of the world that is much bigger than we ever realized. Because in Scripture, marriage is a picture, this incredible oneness of a person with another. It is a metaphor that's picked up in Scripture as a picture of the relationship that we have 
and that we corporately have as God's people with our God. Scripture picks up on the picture of marriage as the most powerful picture of what it means for us to be in relationship with our God. This kind of intimacy, this kind of oneness can only be summed up when God looks at us and says, You are my bride and I am your groom. We see it throughout Scripture. One of the places we see it is in the book of Hosea. Hosea, one of God's prophets, that God calls and He tells Hosea this, I want you to mirror in your life my relationship with my people. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute who is unfaithful and will be unfaithful to you because this is a picture of my relationship with my people. They have been spiritual adulteresses to me. But I am married to them. And so you're going to go marry a woman as a lived out parable of what it means that my spouse has left me. God uses Hosea as a picture of his gracious love of bringing a spouse back. We see it in one of its most powerful places in Ephesians 5, a very famous passage about marriage where Paul goes into detail. He gives instructions to women about what it means to be married and to be a wife and to men about what it means to be married and to be a husband. And at the very end of that section, uh, he sums up what he's teaching this way. And he, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, about a man leaving his father. And he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says this, This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And you hear what he's saying? He's saying this incredible mystery of your marriage... He says, I'm telling you, it's about more than you knew it was about. It is a picture of God's love and care, pursuing love for you. God's pursuing love for His bride, the church, God's people. But by extension, for us as individuals, as He calls us into relationship with Himself. He says, marriage shows us the long-suffering, utterly self-denying love of God for us, His people. I want to read you a quote from a work by Martin Luther. It was called The Freedom of the Christian. It was written in 1520. And he picks up on this metaphor that Scripture holds up of our relationship with God being like a relationship of a husband and a wife. He says this, Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united to her bridegroom. By this mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh and there is between them a true marriage, it follows that everything they have will be held in common. Who can then fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, adorns her with all her goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by Him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast as of her own, in which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say this, If I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned, And all his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. What does he say? When Christ takes us to himself, he is a good spouse, and all that he has becomes ours. All the riches of his goodness, all the riches of his forgiveness, all the riches of his right standing with God are bestowed on us. His bride, his spotted, tarnished, as Luther says, harlot, of a bride. He takes us and gives us 
His gifts. This is what Scripture teaches us about marriage, that our marriages too are a lived out parable of this, of God's incredible forgiveness and faithful love for us. Now what are we going to do with that? Let me give you a couple thoughts. In the hardness of your marriage, whether that is something that characterizes your day-to-day experience or comes up time to time as it does for all of us, in the hard places of your marriage, in the places of brokenness of your marriage, as you look at your marriage and see not, not primarily and sometimes not only or not ever the beauty of what God created marriage to be, but the fallenness and the brokenness of it, where is your hope to be found? Our hope is to be found ultimately not in our spouse, but in the one our spouse and our marriage points us to, our perfect spouse. The one who does not fail. The one who does not break his promises. The one who does not give the cold shoulder. The one who does not mutter those harsh comments under his breath. One that is not abusive or harmful to us. We have this greater spouse. We would be reminded by Jesus himself again that he is our foundation. He is our husband. He is our security. And in the midst of even the broken places of marriage, that we have to grab onto this, this more fundamental reality, that God's love is stronger than the hard places of a broken marriage. God's love is strong enough to heal the hard places of a broken marriage. But let me also say, this: that, that for some of us, this whole sermon has been hard to listen to because uh, for many of us, we're, we're single and we don't want to be. Maybe longing to be married. Maybe we don't need to be convinced that marriage is good and something to which we should aspire, but something we've been desperately asking God about for a long, long time. What does marriage tell us and what does the metaphor of marriage tell us? Well, that God does, in fact, understand the hardness of this. He knows what marriage is created for and He knows the pain of not being in it. But He offers us this hope too. He says, just as Christ is our bride... He says, I am here for you. And as we are a part of that bride of Christ, which is not simply us as individuals, but more importantly, us corporately, he says, I have good and relational gifts to give you through your fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, families that you are around. There's a richness, a relational richness to be had even now. Even as you may be rightly long, would you know God's comfort now? And as that is difficult for you, then go ahead and name that for what it is. A particular kind of suffering. And the Bible says a lot about suffering, as we all suffer in many ways in this world. That He would be our strength, that He would be our encouragement, that we would know that we rest in His hand. For many of us, even in this particular struggle of singleness. As we rightly ask God for this good gift but as we, in faith, look to Him to give us exactly what we need in exactly the right moment. Now, just in conclusion, God created marriage good and for our good. But as good as it was meant to be, and as good as it often is for many of us, we also know that it's still broken and hard. And so we must be people who know the point of marriage, who know the one who stands behind marriage. We must be people in relationship, living, active, vibrant relationship with Jesus. 
the one who stands behind marriage, the one who gives strength for marriage, the one who gives the ability to forgive again and again and again, the one who rushes in to comfort us in the brokenness and loss. We must know Jesus, our even greater spouse. We might step into our marriages and love with a love like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do come and and just pray and thank you for the gift of marriage. And you tell us so much about marriage in your word, and we have barely scratched the surface today. But Lord, as we experience the power of marriage, may we see it for our good and for your glory. And I pray in particular for those who are at this moment struggling in significant places in their marriages. Would they know your strength? Would they know your healing? Would they know softness of heart that comes only from your spirit? Lord, for those who desperately wish to be married and are not, today even, would you give them tangible care, comfort, encouragement for all of us. May we celebrate rightly your good gifts. For you are our good Father. You care for us. And we look to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. What happens after a wedding ceremony? What happens after all the words have been said and the vows have been given? What happens when the minister says, you are dismissed? What does everybody do? They go to a party. They go to a meal, a lavish meal, where they are able to enjoy each other's company in the richness of a marriage celebration. That is what we come to take of this morning. We come to what is rightly called the Lord's table. This is Jesus' table, his meal for his people. And he is the host here. This is not the table of, of our church, of our denomination. This is the Lord's table. and it is, it is his gift to all his people, all who have come into relationship with Christ and have come into relationship with his church and joined a local body of Christ's church. This invitation comes to all God's people and welcomes you in. You are invited to this table. Now, that does mean that if you're here this morning and you're not somebody who's put your faith in Christ, you're not somebody who's come into a relationship with His people, then I'd encourage you not to take this meal today. This meal is not for you yet. But we are glad that you're here. And we don't want you to have to fake something as if it were true when it's not. Don't come to this meal because it's not for you yet. Instead, I'd point you to the Jesus that we are talking about. And the Jesus this meal proclaims that you might come into a relationship with Him and at the right time come and join us for this meal. Scripture also warns us, for us who are following Jesus, if there is sin in our life that we are holding on to and we just won't let go of, we won't repent of, we won't own up to, then we're also warned not to take this meal today because we're turning away from the Jesus this meal proclaims. But this meal is for God's people, stumbling and broken and sinning people, people like you and me. We're looking to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, finding it in Him. He is a generous Savior. He is a generous spouse. And He invites us to this meal that we might know His richness. When we take this meal, we're we're looking in several directions at once. We're looking back to Jesus' death and resurrection for us that we might be brought into relationship with Him. And we're looking ahead to what the Bible calls the great wedding supper of the Lamb when Jesus comes back. And He comes back to claim His bride, His people, us. 
And there will be a wedding ceremony like none other, and there will be a wedding banquet after like none we've ever experienced. Richness of food, the glory of wine. He says, we are going to have a meal set before us like none other, and this meal is a foretaste of that. And it's for us right now, as we are in the middle of that story, as we are people desperately in need of God's presence and grace and touch in our lives. When we take this meal, looking in faith to Jesus, our Lord, seated at the right hand of God the Father, we are united with Him by faith, and He mysteriously pours out His grace on us. We are remembering here, but not only remembering, we are tasting the real thing, our Jesus, for us here. This meal is an incredible gift. Now, we're told about the, start, the institution of this meal in 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul reflects on the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. And he says this, For I have received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, after He had given thanks, He broke bread. And He said, This is My body, which is for you. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Drink this as often as you take this meal. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to You and we thank You for the gift of salvation that we find only in Jesus. In this incredibly paradoxical way that we find life through the death, the brokenness of Jesus on our behalf. But a Jesus who did not stay dead but was raised from the dead that we might have life unending and unbreakable. So we celebrate this sacrament, Father, pointing us to that as we set aside this very common bread and this very common cup for an extraordinary purpose. Would you meet with us in this meal as you promised to do? We look to you in faith. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite our elders forward to help serve. And as they come, I'll remind us we will pass the bread around and can take a piece and tear it off. And then once everybody has been served, then we will take together. And then we will do the same with the cup.